So if you want your business to grow, bringing in other people who will have other ideas, but hopefully together you can develop a better idea that will help the business to grow. Hello, it's Andrew May and welcome to the NAB Business Fit podcast, where we talk to experts in a range of fields and we delve into their world and look at lessons that can be applied to running a small business. Small business is in my veins, from running a lawn mowing business in Dubbo during high school, to traveling the world with national sporting teams, to now running digital consultancy, stridestronger.com. I love all things small business. So too does today's guest. I first met him, and I've got to say he's looking like a young brother of Kenny Rogers today. If you're watching this on our YouTube channel, he's got a wonderful beard. Podrick O'Sullivan, when he arrived in Australia back in the 90s, everyone shortened their name, so he went pod. We'll ask him a little bit more about that. His reputation as a leading international executive coach has been established with over 20 years of leadership and coaching experience. He's worked in Australia, Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. He's been labelled as one of Asia's top leadership experts. He's author of the award-winning series of international books called Foreigner in Charge, Success Strategies for Expat Leaders. His last big corporate gig was Asia Pacific Presidents for a global product and consulting organisation. How did that go? Okay, in three years, he grew revenue by 250%. He's got a very interesting background in healthcare. Being Irish, he loves you too. We were study buddies. We did the coaching psychology degree at Sydney University, and we often see each other on the South Coast in the beautiful town of Jaroa. Pod, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, great to be here, Andrew. Thank you for that uh, introduction. And yes, a ton of Jaroa. What a great place to meet. And it's overcast today. It's Pod. What a wonderful blend. Podcast. There you go. Yes, I did wonder years ago, should I have trademark podcast? But I think I was a bit last, you know, a bit late to the, uh, to the, to the game, but nonetheless. I do like that Irish boy lands in Australia. Everyone adds an O, a Y, an E, or calls you an animal. So you decided to shorten your name and, and, and circumvent anything else that people came up with. Well, what happened was, um, as you said, my, my mother calls me Pordrig, and because uh, I'm from the south of Ireland, and in the west or northwest of Ireland, they say Porig. And I lived for four years in a place called Sligo, which meant everyone called me Porig, which is very normal there. Porig Harrington, the golfers from that part of the world. And it's spelled the same, but it's pronounced differently. And then I lived in London for a couple of years. And of course, all my friends from Sligo were in London. So over there, I was called Porig. And then I came to Australia and they're going, looking at my name and they're going, are you Warwick? I said, Roderick? I'm like, I don't quite get it. I go, no, I'm not, War- not Roderick, not Warwick. Just call me Pod, it'll be easier. And here we are. Nice. And, and, and here we are in a very important topic. And it's exciting. This is our last episode. Not exciting because it's wrapping up. Exciting talking to you. This is the 30th edition we've done on NAB Business Fit. And we're finishing with this and launching Strive Stronger by me next year. So we still are going to be podcasting. I'm going to have you on that as well. But I think it's great to have you bookend this. I can't think of a better person because if I if I think about coaching psychology, executive coaching, leadership, and I've done this a number of times, I come to you. So I wanted our audience to hear lessons from you as well. But let's pull on the red thread a little bit before you came to Australia, growing up in Ireland and your background in healthcare. How did that evolve? Yes, I have a very strange, non-linear and totally unexpected career, Andrew. And most people, when they go, what's your background? They go, are you serious? So I, I grew up in the southwest of Ireland. Uh, I'm the eldest of five kids. And then in, in the early 70s or mid 70s, uh, as, in, as in the 1970s, last century, Andrew, Ireland was in a, a real depression. It was one of the poorest countries in Europe. And so you know, I've got memories of dad got paid every Wednesday at lunchtime. And from Monday night onwards, we would have packet soup and 
maybe bread. And that was it. So, you know, it, but that's all we knew, right? So it was very normal for us. But what that means is when it came to me leaving high school and going to university, because my dad was in the police force and at that stage, it's different now, but at that stage, university fees were fully paid for. I didn't think that I could afford to go to university or my parents could afford to send me to university given I was the eldest to five, et cetera, et cetera. At that stage, I wasn't aware of such a thing as you know, university loans or whatever else. So I decided to do something else that didn't involve me going to university. Growing up in, in the high school I was going to, I got involved in a range of different things. At one stage, I was contemplating being a priest. I know people look at me now and go, are you serious? But I spent six weeks in the seminary and went, no, the wrong, wrong place for me. So I ended up becoming a nurse. So I went up to Sligo, the Northwest of Ireland, and studied uh, what's called general nursing or registered nursing. And that brought me to London later where I, I worked in cardiac surgery and coronary care and uh, cardiac transplants and a whole lot of stuff like that, which is an extraordinary career. But while I was, sorry, extraordinary experience, I should say, Growing up in Ireland, I was also a musician. So I played in lots of different bands. Um, you mentioned U2. U2 were starting out you know, about 10 years ahead of us. So they, they kind of lit the way. So I was you know, a geeky musician. I was involved in, in uh, you know, healthcare, et cetera. Went to London, spent four years working in a place called the Royal Brompton, which at that stage was the National Heart and Lung Hospital of the UK. The first places where cardiac um, surgery ever took place. The first ever mitral valve replacement. A whole lot of innovation. And then five years later, I moved over to Australia and I've been here ever since. It was interesting doing a podcast with you and Dr. Tom Buckley, who's my partner in crime at the Thrive Stronger Research Institute. And uh, apart from having subtitles, when you both started talking Irish, <laughs> did, did, did you notice when you listen back to that, there's a time when you both start riffing and, and your accents got, you know, I'm, I'm having get thought bubbles in the middle of a podcast. Yeah, it did. Like, it's like, well, wow, I need to really lean in here. I think we'll put in some subtitles. But it was fascinating learning, and that's what I love about doing a podcast with someone you know really well, because you can ask the questions you've probably always wanted to know, but they either think you're weird or getting a bit too deep. And it was interesting hearing about your background in healthcare. I'm not surprised you were thinking about going into priesthood. My friends and family, if I'd ever said that, they they would have said, what are you on? <laughs> you're <laughs> compassionate, you're caring. So that makes sense to choose that vocation. But why did you leave? Well, what happened was um, the high school I went to, there was an extraordinary priest in the high school called Roger Kelleher, who got involved in, his job was pastoral care, but he also was a brilliant squash player. And he would bring a whole lot of guys to the squash course on Wednesdays and Thursdays. And, and I'm imagining him, he was in his late 40s or 50s when we were like 16, and he would thrash all of us. But his other job, which I didn't realize so much later, was he was a recruitment officer for the archdiocese for the bishop, i.e. looking for future priests. Was it? They had talent scouts in the, the Catholic Church. <laughs> and I don't think any of us really realized that. Now, that he wasn't doing anything Machiavellian. What he was doing was just you know getting close to all the guys. And then if someone had any kind of orientation towards that way of life, he'd just get closer to them and just chat to them. And But of the cadre I was in, Four of my five closest friends ended up going in to the seminary. And so I was, I was number five. Of the four other guys, two left pretty quickly. Like I, we went in, this is interesting, but just not for us. And two of the other guys uh, were ordained. And in fact, they have both left since, which is really interesting. It's just a, a state of Catholicism in Ireland rather than his poor recruitment. But he, he was just quite extraordinary at spotting, you know, these guys have an orientation towards helping and, you know, in his view, the priesthood was one, one version of that. So of the three of us who left, all three of us went into healthcare roles of different kinds pretty quickly afterwards. 
in my case, it was nursing. In the other case, it was um, psychiatric care of different kinds. Mm. And you come to Australia, settled here, you've got five kids and a dog named Max. When your kids are saying, Dad, we want takeaway or what's this, do you remind them of the story about having packet bread and soup? I have. And as you imagine, because I know you've got kids too, Andrew, they just glaze over and go, yeah, what? Whatever. Sure, Dad. <laughs> so, <laughs> In the old days. In the old days. And that was last century, Dad. We're now this year and you got the money and we got the money. So just go and do it. And of course, you know, it's very hard to explain to someone in a context that they don't understand, they have no understanding of it. It makes no sense to, to modern kids. You know, the idea of, like I, was, like I was talking to them last night, the idea of going to a restaurant for a meal, in my background, it happened four times a year. And my mom would save up for it. And it was a really special occasion. And, you know, the classical restaurants that come around with a little trolley and they have the desserts and you pick the desserts. And my mom would go, I want both of those desserts for the same price as one, because I've been saving up for three months to be here. So, you know, can we compare that to our modern kids' lives? It's, it's just dramatically different. So whilst I remind them regularly, there's no point. Yeah, we could do a separate podcast on that. But that would have had some pretty big implications on you, your thought process. And I'm going to change the order of our podcast, keep you on your feet. You, you normally do a podcast called The Leadership Diet, and we'll give everyone details where to listen. I love listening to your podcast. But you now charge a lot for coaching, a lot. Am I able to say? Sure. You told me recently, if someone's serious about coaching with you, it's $50,000 for a consultant. I love that. It lit me up. I'm like, well, this guy's owning it. So if you're serious about coaching with Pod, 50000 of the hard stuff and you'll go and work with them. That's a big evolution from packet soup and bread to charging 50000 I can't imagine how much work you've done in your self-efficacy, how much work you've done in your storytelling to justify charging that. And you're right, the, the, the notion of money is one barometer of evolution, and, and it, but it's a very visible one, but clearly it's not the barometer of evolution, or indeed it's not the barometer of value, but it is, a, it is an interesting one. And I, I, you know, I do find myself sometimes going, you know, I was in a meeting only this week with top 50 leaders of one of Australia's most well-known organizations, it's, you know, it's an ASX top 40 organization, they have you know, 10,000 plus staff around the world. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, how did I end up in this conversation? Is that interesting when you think about where I started? But then again, when you think about anybody who's got a business, which your listeners do, many of them would have grown up in families that have small business, but a lot of them wouldn't have. So the idea of having the courage to go and do something different is, I think, one of the core characteristics of any kind of leader and certainly any kind of small business owner. So it's by no means unique to me. In fact, I would say it's probably the starting point for most business owners is, is that but you're right. It wasn't a, in any ways a straight line from my starting point to where I am now. I've had many career changes, had many ups and downs. I tell a story that's very, very true. I've been uh, down to my last $24.45. I remember that figure very loudly. Well, knowing that you've rounded that out, <laughs> I, I can feel the realness. It was 45 cents and I was getting calls every second night from my bank who had a mortgage on the house. I remember very clearly that point in time. How long ago was that pot? We're now, that was 16 years ago. Wow. So very, very different place to where I am now. Um, I happened to, uh, I had done some business development in an organization and the head of human resources for that organization, who I hadn't seen in three or four months, rang me out of the blue and said, oh, can, I, can you come and do some work with us? Can I ask you a favor? I just need to pay you today. And I went, oh my God, here we are, right? And the money landed in my account that day. And uh, pure ironically, that person then came to join my business about three years later. And 
even more ironically, I ended up marrying that lady three years after that. So she saved my life in a few different ways along the way, starting financially many years ago. I got goosebumps. I didn't realize I've met your lovely wife. I had no idea that she helped you when you had $24 in the bank. She didn't know I thought I had either, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the time, she would have had no idea, right? Because you go in the house business. Oh, business is fantastic. Any small business owner listening to this, we've all had that. Oh, no, things are, things are really looking up. Well, they can't get any worse when you got $24 in the bank. <laughs> so there must have been some resilience, some grit. We can go through all the psychological constructs, but there also must have been balance with some almost despair. I look at that stage, I mean, I look back now and go, I, I made so many mistakes. The biggest one was at that stage in my life, I was 32. I was backing myself uh, far too early in the sense that I knew what I wanted to do. I had fallen across this notion of coaching. I knew that I would love to do it. I had worked in recruitment as in headhunting, and I was really good at that. And the mistake I made was jumping out of something that I was very good at that was potentially a very lucrative role to be in and backing myself into a brand new sector that was still emerging as a brand new sector. And I hadn't had enough experience. So that, that was a big mistake. And I, you know, I look back now and when I, a lot of coaches come to me or a lot of execs come to me who are thinking of going into this field, I go, well, let's, just, let's just walk through your transition plan so you don't walk into the same mistake that I did. So that, that was a big mistake. But you know what I did, Andrew? It taught me um, to learn how to sell really well. And it taught me to work very hard. And it taught me to take on every piece of work I can get to, first of all, pay the bills, but then to learn lots about it. And later then to realize what parts of this I'm good at, what parts I no longer am good at, or indeed, what parts am I good at, but I don't want to do any longer. And therefore, the work that I do do, I want to do it and I'm good at it. And that's, that's kind of where I'm at these days. But certainly I look back on those moments and go, you know, there's a lot. For about three years afterwards, if my phone ever rang after 6 p.m., my body went into a sense of fear because I remembered phone calls coming from, uh, you know, one of the banks uh, looking to go, when are you paying your mortgage? You're behind your mortgage again. And um, thankfully, these days I'm completely debt free. So it's a very different sense of the world. But it's, I suspect it's, a, it's a, a moment that a lot of business owners go through. And you're right, there's, there's a moment of despair and a moment of grit in terms of, Am I committing to this? And in, in that particular moment, that when that phone call came through, I had, a, I had a bit of luck in the sense of someone came in, was able to, you know, cash flow me out of a, of a tough position. And then from that moment, I've never looked back, but there was a moment of time. I mean, think about coaching though, and some people might think incorrectly, oh, the best coach is the person who's got everything perfect, perfect house, perfect life, perfect teeth, marriage, kids, home. Rubbish, no one's perfect. It's the imperfections and flaws. My business, Strive Stronger, is founded on the word, the old French word, estrave, which means to push through challenging situations and come out the other side and being stronger in all parts of our lives. So you learn more from the challenging times. But I imagine when you're down to 24 bucks, you've had enough learning. So let's put some of those learnings to practice. And we'll, there's a couple of open loops we've got here and we'll tie some of them together. Sell me leadership and why it's important for a small business owner. I'm, I'm a huge fan of leadership. I spent almost all my life in this space. Remember you asked me not that long ago, you know, what's my purpose in life? And without even thinking, I said to you, every single day I get up to help leaders be as brilliant as they can be because the ripple effect leaders have on other people is phenomenal. So that's, that's what I think about. That's what I do. That's what's important to me. I believe it's equally important in a small micro business with three people as it is in a, in a large corporate organization. So 
for me, leadership is, is everything. So I am very biased about this. And I have a sense of leaders who step into the role of leadership. I look upon them as in it's a really noble role. And I mean noble in the true French sense as it bring it takes courage. Because right? if you want to be a leader, if you want to be a business owner, there's a lot of upside, hopefully. But the downside is you're making decisions that are not palatable sometimes. You're making decisions that people don't like sometimes. You're being holding yourself and others accountable when you don't want to. So for me, when I look at leadership, I look at how do I help them be as good as they can be. But here, back to your first question, you know, what is leadership? Like you can pick up any textbook, any, you know, go onto YouTube, we get thousands of definitions. But the one that I use when I'm chatting to people is your know, leadership is about bringing into being what you want to happen or what's important for you. Because mm. without it, it may not happen, right? So for me, there's a sense of creativity. Or there's a, a dreaming up what is important to us or to me. How do we bring it about? Takes energy and momentum and thinking through, and it might require strategies, it might require tactics. And the third part is it's important to us. So therefore, it's linking back into our situation, etc. No acronyms, no mnemonics. Come on, no seven steps, thousands of years through Eastern and Western philosophy. I love it. It's simple. You can resonate with it. And for small business owners, pod, a lot of them struggle. And I know I have with leadership in the past. Like if you've got a small team, there might be some people listening to this who've got themselves and they might have a bookkeeper or an accountant to help with tax. And you've got a number of SMEs or small businesses, let's say up to around 20 or so staff and then SMEs above that as well. How would you look at leadership with those three different areas? So you know, one or two people, uh, up to 20 people, and then a business really getting up around 50 to 100 people? Look, I think the first thing to distinguish when you think of, of a, a small to medium business or a micro business, for me, I think they fall into two different categories. Both are equally important. Both choices are equally valid. They're just different. And the first one is, you know, I think of them as stability. And, and what that means is the business owner has set up a business to give themselves stability. A cynical view would suggest they're moving from a job and they've given themselves another job. They just happen to own the job. But that's that's a cynical view. What's really happening is to give themselves a sense of stability. So what that means is efficiency in the business is important. Cash flow in the business is important. Lifestyle for the business owner is probably important. But the payoff, like the benefit of being their own business owner is now. They're getting the payoff now. So if you think about a small you know, consulting firm or a small solopreneur or a small group of three or four people, their profits are being taken out every single day, every single month, every quarter, whatever the, the, the uh, payment schedule is. And there's no benefit coming down the track. You know, there's, there's no good value or value in the business to sell. Most organizations are in that category. You know, if you are a retail owner with one outlet, that is your business. If you're an accountant with three or four people working for you, that is your business. If you're an exec coach with three people working for you, that is your business. Perfectly fine. And I think the stats suggest that the vast majority of employers, certainly in Australia, are in that category. So when we look at that, you just got to look at the motivation is efficiency, lifestyle, payoff now, and give me a sense of control over what I want to do. Right? Perfectly fine. However, if you look at the other side of that equation is the motivation for a small business owner is growth. Yeah, I'm starting here, but my intention is to grow. So if I'm a single retail owner, as example, my intention might be to have five or 10 retail outlets, as example. If I'm a small consulting group, my intention might be to have four offices around Australia or 20 consultants in my team. It's a different motivation. The payoff is later. You know, the payoff doesn't happen right now. I might take some payout 
down along the way, but I'm looking to get growth and therefore a payoff later. So that that looks at effectiveness. Yeah, how effective are we in our systems? How effective am I in terms of delegating to other people? How effective are we at thinking around partnering with opportunities outside our current domain, etc.? It's a different type of thinking. So when we talk about leadership in those areas, for me, the most important thing is to, with the business owners, is to get clear, what is it I want for my business? Because if I want ultimately stability, if I want payoff now, if I don't want the hassle of having teams in different parts of the city or other cities, there's no point in me in engaging in conversations around growth. Because even if I try to implement them, I won't. Because my motivation, my core motivation will, will, is different to that. So when I think about leadership, my, my first starting point always is context. What's the context for you as the leader or the business owner in this case? And what if you think about your context now and the context that you want, then what's your role as a leader? Now let's talk about leadership. Because the role of the leader in a small business where actually we don't want to grow beyond what we have, you know, we want to stay viable and you know, 5% growth in our net profits every year is perfectly fine. As long as we're staying ahead of inflation, you know, as long as I get my four or five weeks holidays a year, et cetera, et cetera, that's what we want. Great. Leadership then looks like efficiency. And it looks like having a small core people who will stay here so I don't have to keep turning over, et cetera. Whereas the leader who's, or the business owner who sets up a business and their plan is to grow, it's a very different type of leadership. Now, as the outsider looking in, at any point in time, they look the exact same, but the motivations are different. But I'm, I'm glad you framed that because so many people will ask someone, oh, how's your business growing? How many staff have you got? Yeah, how successful is it? Are you scaling? But for some people, it may be a lifestyle machine or a choice that they've worked in a big company or they've always you know, had businesses in the past and they want to dial it down a bit and invest time in other parts of their life. I've got to say, though, in my mind, stability, payoff now and growth, March 2020, when we lost 93% revenue in, in our business, in my speaking business and in our main business, Strive Stronger, I was thinking, why did I leave KPMG? No growth. <laughs> no growth that last year, seriously, no payoff, no stability. And I know a lot of small business owners have been challenged like they never have before. And as we're coming back into this hybrid model of working, depending on the small business, some have flourished tech-based companies or businesses that could scale are booming. I feel for the coffee shop and the providors in the little lanes in Melbourne, especially, you know, who've had nearly a year of lockdown. And you know, digitize your business, innovate. Well, if you're selling coffee or if you're selling flowers in a laneway where there's no traffic, it's been tough. So it's almost been two speeds through COVID. A friend of mine runs a recruitment company that specializes in hospitality. So you can imagine last year they were just dead. They are absolutely booming in the last three weeks with a major, major anchor. They can't get staff. They could fill hundreds and hundreds of jobs right today, but they can't get it. Now, there's a whole lot of reasons as to why they can't find them. You know, partly our borders are closed for so long. International students aren't here. You know, folks who were employed in hospitality, the jobs went, they then moved into construction. There's a whole lot of other reasons. You know, the unintended consequences of, of good policy, et cetera. But, what that means is, you know, as you said, you know, the, the retail or the uh, hospitality business owners, which are probably the most visual aspect of, of high street trading is, is those business owners. They will boom as soon as they get their staff back because you know, the population of the country wants to go back out. So, so going back to the, you know, the early distinction between both of them, 
Now, I use the word efficiency in, in, as being a core term for that kind of business owner. Efficiency also means how do I retain a core number of staff because I don't spend, I don't want to spend time in ongoing recruitment, ongoing training, et cetera. That's where they will need to index quickly in the, over the next few weeks in order to be able to capitalize on the boom. But you're right. Tech companies that have a digital product and tech companies by nature are able to work in hybrid fashions because those kind of workers generally do that anyway. It's played into their business model, hasn't it? When you look at the share prices of Apple, Microsoft, Atlassian, Canva, phenomenal growth, phenomenal. Yeah, maybe look at Seek. You know, Seek's business model is based on employment as, as its core business model. It, over the last, I think it's two years, the share prices jumped up by like 18, 19% because they quite wisely moved into other parts of digital economies and the staff can all work from home quite, quite well. So, you know, you're right. Digital, con- digital economies are, are booming and taking over some of the more traditional economies that we had. Mm. So it's a nice frame on, on being really clear about the business you have as a small business owner. And, and what do you want to do in the next five plus years? Scale the living daylights out of it or just continue to have a nice business? But, but regardless, you've got to have a little bit left over, right? Because I think so many people I have met over the years, Pod, wonderful, beautiful, passionate human beings, but they're living like day to day, week to week, month to month, $24 left in their bank account. And if you're doing that for an extended period of time, you've got to change a few things. And I think you've given a really good structure for what people can look at. Now, I want to dive deeper into an area that we haven't done on this podcast yet, and that is of founder or startup. I was introduced at a conference last year and the MC said, oh, Andrew's got a startup called Stride Stronger. And I sort of sat back and thought, hmm, I'm in startup now. This is the fourth business. I mean, I've sold one little business, but two businesses, I would say, that were reputable businesses. So one to the French hotel company, Accor, and then sold my last business, Performance Clinic, to KPMG. I never thought of myself, though, as a startup guy or a founder. But now, you add some technology and government grants, get a skateboard, play foosball, wear jeans. You know, <laughs> Everyone's walking around pretending they're in Silicon Valley. So that, that founder mindset, though, or the startup mindset, it's a very different business. And I know you've had ex- experience working with startups yourself as well. So I'd like to really look at, first of all, the mindset. What, what, what have you seen that's different, good and bad, about the founder mindset? It's a fantastic question because I think when we, you know, when, when people talk about leadership, you know, it's, it's so easy to go, oh, here's what Steve Jobs did and here's what uh, another founder did. And looking at founders who are successful and trying to look at their habits and go, well, here's what leadership looks, should look like, I think is a complete misnomer. In the same way as you're an elite uh, athlete coach, look at any one of our great athletes and go, okay, that's what we should now do the same thing in corporate because that's what athletes do. It's a complete misnomer. There are hints and patterns that are, might be useful as directional, but everything else is a complete misnomer because the mindset and the context is so different. If you're a founder, you are able to potentially see a pathway and an opportunity that no one else can see. Otherwise you wouldn't be doing something, right? So you go, here's an opportunity. I think I've got something really unique to offer that. And I think I can see a pathway towards success that other people can see. Otherwise they'll all be doing it. That's the starting point. Of course, the founder might be wrong in their point of view, right? But that's, that's where they start. Well, I just wrote down, what's the difference between a different pathway and craziness? The outcome, we don't know yet. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, the, you know, at, at the starting point, it's, it's passion, it's exciting. A couple of years later, whether you've had a lot of look along the way, you put structures in place that have supported you, you might be successful or you might not. You won't know until hindsight. But certainly at the starting point, the founder has the belief, otherwise they wouldn't have the energy to get up and do something, that they have discovered something that they believe will lead them towards a good outcome. Otherwise, they wouldn't bother. 
That suggests then that they have a high degree of passion. They certainly have a high degree of self-motivation as I will back myself to do something. I don't need the security of someone else's paycheck for me to do this. I'm willing to back myself. That means that means they're also committed to this. Uh, and they tend to sacrifice. Right? They're willing to sacrifice other things in pursuit of this. They are the ultimate payoff will come later. And I'm willing to put this in. Now, if you think about all those together, how many people do we know in our own circle of friends that are visionary, they are passionate, they're energetic, they're committed, they're willing to sacrifice everything and willing to do it now, and maybe even a bit delusional in order to pursue something. Mm. The reality is there's not many. Well, probably a good test as you stack those words together, get a bunch of your buddies, go to the casino and give everyone a hundred bucks and watch how they bet. And your friend that goes to the roulette wheel and puts everything on 26 red, get him or her backing in a startup. The other thing about founders, which is really interesting, is particularly in their 30s or specifically in their 40s, is they are very rational, conservative risk takers. As in, in your early 60s, in your late teens, early 20s, your risk propensity is far higher because you've got, you got a lot less to lose. You don't have a mortgage. You probably don't have children. You, know, you, might, you might still be uni. You might come out of uni, et cetera. So they're willing to take a risk and lose something is, well, first of all, you don't even think about it at that age. But even if you do lose it, it's not, a, it's not a major concern. Whereas if you are going to be, if you're going to start a business or take on a business in your 40s, you already have had 20 years more experience for a start. You probably have had a mortgage. You may still have it. You probably have had a family or, or you may still have kids around you. So you are making more strategically conservative decisions. So you weighing up the choices but you still have the passion, the energy, the commitment, the sacrifice, et cetera. So um, one of the myths around entrepreneurs is that they're reckless decision makers. I don't think it's the case. I think in the early, early stages, they are high risk takers, but not necessarily reckless. Certainly in their thirties, forties and fifties, they're not reckless at all. They're very strategically thinking around how can I leverage whatever this is. But all of that goes to the mindset of a founder being very, very different to the mindset of everybody else. You know, even, even a leader who's willing to come into a business, take a lower salary than I got elsewhere because I believe in this potential business, the owner has promised me some bonuses or maybe even some equity. There's a fair degree of risk in that, but they're still coming in on a salary. They're not taking 100% risk. So their level of commitment, their level of passion is not as high as the founder. They might be very energized, they might truly believe in it, but still not as, as high as the original founder. And I think that's where founders often slip up is they start getting annoyed at how come these people are not as passionate as me? How come they don't believe in this as much as I do? Well, they, well, they never would. First of all, it's your vision for you. You, you did it to keep yourself happy originally. That's why you started this. No one else is ever going to buy into it as much as you do. And most people don't have the same risk propensities as the founder does anyway. So straight away, you've got a different profile in terms of personality and risk, et cetera. So for me, when I'm talking to founders, particularly early stages, it's the first thing is to understand you will never find someone who's as passionate as you, who's willing to take the same amount of risk as you. If you're lucky and if you're good at selling your message and if you're good at hiring, you'll find people who are passionate and hopefully together you'll figure out a reason why you all want to gather and call that purpose and, and, and direction, etc. But most people will never take the same amount of risk as you will. So start there and just understand that's my starting point. And how do I calibrate from that point? I was going to ask you a question for a very good friend of mine. 
who's a founder, and how how should he or she recruit staff? Because when you put those words down, passion, energy, commitment, sacrifice, and discipline, you've answered that beautifully. And I, I know that's where I went wrong in the early years, not this business, but in previous. I'd get frustrated because people weren't as energetic or committed or passionate. And I needed your coaching back then. But it is, it's a challenge as, as businesses evolve. And then the next stage, I'd like to get your thoughts on when you go from founder to having some support. So at, at this stage, I've funded or bootstrapped Stride Stronger, uh, plan on doing that. Uh, I'm open about I, I want to build and scale a business that at, down the track I do sell or leverage. But at the moment, definitely wanting to, to bootstrap. But that's a whole different thing. And I know a number of listeners, because we've had some people on the NAB Business Fit platform ask questions around this, and it is really specific to leadership. So I feel like we're scaling up that you've got a business, which is you. And then if you then go down the startup founder, there's I think there's an implication in that word founder or startup that you're wanting to scale. And then to get to the next stage, if you're not bootstrapping, you start to sell equity. And once you do that, there's, again, a risk reward. You get some money coming in, woohoo, I can go and buy some stuff. You know, I've got bills and there's a bit more consistency. But you also lose the sole decision-making capacity. You can also lose culture. And that's a huge one, right? If you have other people in, if you haven't clearly defined culture, you can also lose your identity. Because suddenly the baby that you had is now got surrogate parents who want to give it a different name and they don't like your red cute shoes they think they look shit <laughs> they want big blue shoes so okay let's let's back the truck up I've, I've set up a whole bunch of themes then so we've gone from someone's made a conscious decision they want to keep a small business and you've spoken about stability payoff and growth i love that then we've spoken about startups and founders now that next step when you do get equity into your business or you get investment into your business how do you go about that? How, how do you help people with leadership and aligning that leadership to strategy, to people development and staying sane? So there's, there's, there's the word you used a few minutes ago, which I think is the most important word in all this is identity. And this goes to mindset. It goes to understanding yourself. It goes to self-awareness. It goes to cognitive biases. It goes to the identity needed at different stages of evolution. So if you just, if, if we just go there for a second, then we'll jump into business. Think about the the identity. And what I mean by that is the way you thought or the way you understood the world when you grew up as a you know, young athlete at, in Tessie versus the identity you had in your first business versus the identity when you first got married versus the identity when you first became a father versus the identity when you sold your first business. Think about the way you made sense of the world at each of those times. I'm betting that as you grew older and had more experience, you were able to understand more of the world and how it truly worked than when you started. Yes, 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 no, bump bow, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. The bump bow was going through a marriage separation at 39 years of age. And I, it's so interesting you say this on identity because I was the performance guy. I had you know won state championships multiple times. I had worked with national sporting teams, was starting to do TV work, wrote a book, was behind a lot of CEOs, execs, you know, lived the life. And then suddenly marriage failure. So if I ran into you, oh, how are you going? I, I felt like I was a failure and that people would judge me. And so I spiraled walking around functional, depressed for 18 months. How wrong I was, Pod. Seriously, mate. And for any, especially male listening to this, if you go through a challenging time and think, you know, you've lost it, strive, pushing through challenging times and coming out the other side. I had to totally change my identity. I'm a much better leader, coach, father, lover, partner, 
dad everything in between that because I've gone through the bump bow, but I really struggled at the time. And I see this with a lot of athletes. If their only yep. identity is she is the netball player, he is the AFL player, and they're suddenly not, what else have they got? There's two things there. One is I also went through a, my marriage breakdown at 39, so I know I know exactly how you felt, and we've, we've discussed this in the past together. In hindsight, those events, be it the breakdown of a marriage, be it the, you know, you've lost your first big customer, or you, your best staff member has walked out, whatever the event is, they're really, really hard in that moment. But it's the reflection after those events in terms of, okay, what's happened here? What was my part in this event? I... What have I done that's caused that staff member to leave? Even if I don't like the answer, that is the best reflection because it's in those moments our, our identity grows. We start to see more of the reality that we previously hadn't been able to see. So, but marriage, which you and I both went through, we, you know, in, in, at the moment it's a dreadful thing after the, uh, and there's obviously a reason why we, we and everybody breaks up their marriage. The relationship is not working for whatever reason. Typically, most people blame the other person at, at the beginning. But, but later you can look back and go, okay, I wasn't the best person in that relationship. And I can now see what I was doing to cause that. I have a choice. I can choose to do that differently in my next relationship, or I can continue to blame somebody else. Right? It's a choice. Yeah. Back to your question about the founder, the identity of the founder is phenomenally important. And the, you know, one of the core reasons why founders are successful and the core reason why most founders are not is the founders who are successful are so for a few different reasons. One is they get good strategy, like they figure out a really good strategy for the business and they can pivot and there's a whole lot of stuff in that. Two is they get good cash flow, which can come with external funding or otherwise, but hopefully it's organic funding, but it can be otherwise. The third one though is they adapt and change their mindset along the way. So the, the founder who's gone, this is my baby. And as soon as I start bringing other people into it and I don't like them taking my baby, they're in trouble at that point in time. Hmm. It, it, the trouble may not show till months later, but they're in trouble at that moment in time. And it's like, it's, this is a bad metaphor, but it's a useful one. It's like a parent with a five-year-old child that they adore and go, I'm not yet sending this child to school because they will change. Well, that's the purpose of going to school is to change and grow and evolve. So if you want your business to grow, bring in other people who will have other ideas that hopefully together you can develop a better idea that will help the business to grow. But if you are going, I am the founder, I know best, this is my baby. Sometimes you might be right in that you do know best about some technical things of the business. Usually you're wrong. And if you are getting equity partners or getting investment, there's, there's a whole lot of different ways of doing funding. Go into that open-minded knowing that you will lose some of the control, but, but have a really clear strategy, as you said, really clear leadership. One of the best lessons I had, Pod, when I sold uh, what was healthy business that become is now Executive Health Solutions, they wanted to change the name back then. And David Bafsky, who was the chairman of Accor, I can remember going to Mr. Bafsky's office. A lot of respect for Mr. Bafsky. Everyone called him Mr. Bafsky. And he sat me down and he said, I'm going to tell you a couple of things. You don't run this business now. We're changing the name. If you don't like that, get over it. And it was blunt, but he was right. And I can remember going out wanting to just throw all my toys out the pram. And I sat down at the bottom of the office in William Street where he was in the Westfield Tower and just thought, He's right. I've, I've got to get over it. It was abrupt. It was a job that he knew that I needed. But I think that's where a lot of founders come undone because, you know, when you scale at that next level, it's not you. Exactly right. And then I do smile when I, when I meet people setting a particularly consulting business for the first time. And they, you know, in, in, in the best of intention to get a wide range of views, 
sent out an email to all the friends going, look, I've got five different logos. Can everyone help me? No one cares. Really? <laughs> it's not really going to be worth it. Well, yes, just pick one. And as soon as you put on your business card, no one will ever look at it anyway. And it's that attachment to it that, that's actually the problem. Surely, though, the difference between magenta and a, a lighter grade of pink makes a huge difference to profitability. But clearly you haven't sent me those emails. <laughs> <laughs> There's a pause there. Is he serious about this? <laughs> but again, it goes back to the founder's mindset. Are you trying to grow a business for growth versus stability? The person who's looking for stability is going, I really want to care for my, my the color of my logo. But they've already decided without even knowing that. The person who's going for growth is going, who are the customers that I don't know yet and how can I satisfy their needs? Can you guys help me figure that out? Yeah. And, Different mindset completely. And rather than getting stuck on the colour of your business cards or the back secondary print colour, what pillars should people be looking at? So when, when I think about this, obviously you've got your leadership training and development and a vision of your business, but then we, we start talking about values and vision and behaviours. Can you talk to me about that? Because a lot of people get confused and I think they look at this and sort of rewind the three different business types we've spoken about, the smaller business, uh, then the business person that's wanting to grow and evolve the business. And then we've got, okay, let's scale and get other partners in. Yeah. What's uniform throughout those? For businesses that are scaling, like for a small business, the word values is probably never even thought about or, or talked about. So, you know, five people or less, it's probably a, an interesting conversation once at the pub and that's it. Because values are, are so obvious because you can see it happening around each other. You've got a small number of people, you know, you can see our, our, our leader or the owner, you can see that they value this because every time they make a decision, it goes towards that particular thing. You can, you know, straight away what they value. If it's a retail, you, you know, it'll be, you know, it'll be either volume of sales, it'll be net profit, it'll be whatever. Like you'll see immediately because the business owner lives that every single day. The figure that people use when they're talking about you know, how much can I influence other people? It tends to be, you know, five to 20 people around me. It's very obvious. 25 to 50, it starts needing structure to talk to me because I can't talk to 50 people around me every single day. It caps out at 150. As in the most number of people I can influence on a regular basis, the most number of people whose names I can remember, you know, their, their family's names, their dog's names, it caps out at around 150. So somewhere between 50 and 150, we need to start putting in systems, structures, protocols, processes that allow us to not have to do all of the work of scaling, as in the system is now starting to scale us. So when we talk about scaling leadership, what we really mean is the way you lead five or 10 people, how do you do something similar across 50, 150, 500, 1,000? That's scaling leadership. In a small business, for this conversation, let's say small is you know, up to like 50 or 100, that kind of notion Systems start with a small business is, you know, does everyone understand the opening hours, the, the manual protocols, whatever that business is. When you start getting to like 50 odd people, by nature now in teams, you've got three or four teams of people. It might be shift workers, if it's a consulting business, it might be the consultants and the accountants and the whatever it is, but there's a different small number of teams there. Therefore, the processes go towards teams, the interplay between teams, do we have a common deadline that we need to deliver by, et cetera, the communications amongst the groups? So processes will start looking at, you know, do we have a re you know, regular meeting structure? Do we have agendas? Do we have quarterly results? That kind of thing. Nothing onerous, but it's starting to give information to everybody so everyone knows what we're talking about. When you start hitting those numbers, decisions need to be consistent. And this is where values come in. So values are useful to help leaders understand and help everyone else to be aware of 
We make decisions like this because we value this. So when it comes to making tough decisions or unclear decisions or decisions that have got three or four different solutions, we go back to what we value and that guides our decisions. So as an example, if we believe that getting revenue is the most important thing, and I have a sales guy on my team who was brilliant bringing in revenue, but they are crap to work with, but my value is revenue trumps all, guess what's going to happen to that salesperson? They're going to get rewarded every single time. And that's either a said value or a non-said value, but every single time I'm at risk of losing this guy, therefore I'm at risk of losing revenue versus he's upset, you know, Johnny in, in, the, in, the, in the other department, I don't care. That's a value in action. May not be the best value, but it's a value in action. Versus we actually heard, I was with some the other day who are in a digital marketing agency. They've got about 40 folks. For them, one of the core values is, are our staff engaged and happy to be here? It's a core value. They fire two of their clients in the previous six months because the clients were too hard to work with. They fired their clients. Fired staff the clients. clients, yeah. I love that. That's a value in action. You know, we value our staff. We looked at the revenue from this client. We looked at how hard they were to work with. They were not fair. They were becoming aggressive. We fire them. So I think one of the biggest misnomers is that saying, client is always right, always focus on the customer. Rubbish. If your customers are pain in the ass, they're not right, get rid of them. I think the right clients are often right. As in, mm. we think about what we want to do, where we want to specialize, and, and you know, the, you know, the work that we're best at, whatever that your small business is, and the kind of group of clients that fit that bill, they're the right clients for you. So hopefully you can work in such a way that they feel right most of the time because it feels good for you. But it doesn't mean that they have carp blanche that when they make, make mistakes, you just look it over. That's not the case. The idea of every client is right the whole time, I think that's a misnomer. Mm. Now, we've spoken a lot about business and about leadership. So I want to flip it and then we'll get onto some individual and some human performance parts. So what I want to flip, what are you growing? What's your business? What type of business and how are you putting this stuff into practice? And, you can, and if you feel comfortable, maybe to pick one or two of the themes we've spoken about and give it a bit of, bit of context. So I've, I've set up a new business a year ago. And so I've been a small business owner. I've, been, I've scaled businesses. I've sold two different businesses. And uh, my last business, which was a consulting business, but I sold it into a US group. And then I went uh, into that organization and uh, took on the Asia Pac leadership role. I was there for four years. And I left that um, in December 2019. And my, my, my plan was to take a month or two off. And then I guess what, COVID kicked and I ended up taking about five or six months off. Um, but I've, I've set up a new organization. It's a consulting organization, uh, but this specializes specifically in uh, leadership teams in organizations that are multinational organizations. So that's what I'm specializing in these days. And I'm specializing in um, scaling leadership. So organizations that are either fast growing or, uh, and therefore they're putting on new people or they're growing into new markets. And, and scaling leadership brings a whole lot of complexities that are often unknown until you get into it. Uh, so you know, one of the areas that I love working with is, is helping leadership teams across different countries or, or different domains, not figure out what complexity looks like, because if we could figure it out, then it wouldn't be complex. But how do we navigate it and how do we get ready for it? And how do we, um, and indeed the last 18 months of COVID has taught the whole world that's a very complex situation. Hmm. The organizations and the leaders who've done best are those who've been able to navigate and figure out how do I pivot or change or the, you know, the metaphor I often use, how do you do Tai Chi? Because you know, the energy is coming from you at many, many angles. You still can't see it, but you, you got to move with it. So 
So really, I'm, I'm, I'm working with complexity and scale leadership are the two areas I'm specializing in. Are you looking for stability, payoff now, growth? Are, are you wanting to be Dr. Frickin' Evil and build a global consultancy? Insert laughter now. Well, you know, there's different stages of, of, of life and as business owners. I have built businesses specifically to grow and went through the whole notion of the payoff is later, and that's why I'm doing it. And I have built businesses where, which is all about the payoff is now. In my current life, um, my consulting part of the business is the payoff is now. And so, I'm, and so the way I've constructed that business is we, we have uh, 15 in our team, but we all own our own businesses. So there's no employees in our business. So it's effectively, it's a, it's a shared umbrella type construct because all of us at this stage of our careers are maximizing for the now. Having said all that, we're also just started in a digital component of our business, which is a, a virtual reality uh, using virtual reality as part of a leadership development process was still very new and virtual reality is still new. But that part of the process is if we take that um, to market, then that will be for growth. So two different areas. Good answer because you're practicing what you preach. I liked hearing that. And I was that question was evolving as I was listening and I wanted to wait to get to the end. But you got real clarity. And for people listening to this, they'll see how concise that was. You didn't know I was going to ask that question. Uh, I just wanted to know it. The curious side of me as well, but it's also really punctuates what you've said. So let's uh, flip onto some more individual or some habits. Let's call them leadership micro habits. What are they? When you look at a leader, that's a, a best practice habits, because you, you talk about system structure and processes for an organization. For the individual, that's habits. The word habits is one of my favorite words, uh, which might, might be why you used it. I'm not sure. But a number of years ago, I, I led a research piece, uh, which became known as the Daily Habits of Exceptional Leaders. And in this case, it was sitting in organizations, but it doesn't make a difference if it was large organizations, if it was a startup business, if it was a small uh, business owner. The habits are actually fundamentally the same across all aspects of leadership in all sectors. So I'll talk about this and so we'll, we'll identify the factors of the habits, but and your listeners to this, I want you to know if you're a small business owner who's looking for growth, and let's distinguish that as opposed to stability, then these habits will be effective irrespective how, how early in your growth phase you are. So what we did was I had a hypothesis that leaders who are seen to be exceptional in the eyes of the people who, who they work with had a series of habits at home, before work, after work, on the weekends, that primed them in such a way that when they turned up at work, they were really good. So that was my hypothesis. And having worked with lots of leaders, I had a hypothesis as to what that might be. But there was no research that we could find to actually identify exactly what those habits were. So what I did was I approached an organization called the Leadership Circle. And, and eventually, the, the irony is they ended up buying my business out a couple of years later. But I approached them because they, have, they had a very and still do, a very powerful and well-respected leadership assessment tool that was global. And my, my thought was, well, whoever in that database that they have that sits at the top end of the database, as in the 90 percentile or above, that means they are the best leaders out of that whole database. So let's say, so that group of people already identified, i.e., I don't have to spend time trying to figure out who's a great leader. They've already done that. And so what we did, we, we, we set up a study where we, we approached uh, 45 leaders across um, Sydney, Singapore, and parts of Indonesia and Hong Kong. They all were business leaders as opposed to, say, HR or coaches, whatever. They had to have been in the role for two plus years, and they had to have a 
profit and loss responsibility. So true commercial leaders. The organization size varied from, I think the smallest organization was about 25. The large organization was PricewaterhouseCoopers for Asia Pac. So you know, lots and lots of people and a range of uh, folks in between. They moved across, I think it was about 10 different sectors. We had 65% women, 35% men. Now that's just an interesting piece, just mm. as pause there. The most successful, impressive leaders, according to Leadership Circle database, which is a global database, majority are women. That's also my experience is the majority of women. So business owners and business founders, I think we're seeing a really interesting phase in Australia where there's more and more female business founders happening around our country, which I think is fantastic, by the way. That means our future economy is in good hands. But in this particular uh, research, and so it was actually 60-40, not 65-35, it was 60-40 split. So what we ended up doing was we created a study that went over four weeks. We, um, most of them had, had, well, at this stage, they all had smartphones. We were able to set up a, a, an app in their smartphone that prompted them three times a day to, in a, in a very quick process to capture what they've just been doing, i.e. what's the process you have. We did some interviews before the research started. We did some interviews at the end. And then um, we got something like 4,000 pieces of data at the end of it all. And um, some of it was qualitative, most of it was quantitative. And so then we start looking for patterns. What are these folks doing in the morning? What are they doing at nighttime? What's they doing in the weekends, et cetera? And is there anything coming through? What astounded us was, even though these leaders were different countries, different sectors, the habits were almost identical. Let me walk you through some of those. Well, I'm busting to know. Build up, build up, build up. What are they? So is this time to go for a commercial break and we come back afterwards? Is this, uh, <laughs> You've been listening to the Now Business Fit podcast. We'd like to let you know. <laughs> give us the, is it five, seven, nine, ten? So in, in the morning, these leaders all had the same habit, which was they spent somewhere between seven and nine minutes, right? Again, a short period of time, looking through their diary for the day, looking through the various important meetings and not doing the to-do list. That's the obvious thing. That's what we thought they were doing. They were looking at the meeting going, how do I need to show up in that meeting? I.e., what's my sense of presence I need to have in that meeting? Because what they had realized over the course of their career was, let's say they went into a nine o'clock meeting and they got really annoyed and they came out of that meeting and went into the 10 o'clock meeting and came out and then 11 o'clock meeting, they were still annoyed. The people in the 11 o'clock meeting had no idea what happened at the nine o'clock meeting. All they knew was our leader, Andrew, is really, really angry. We've no idea what's going on. Oh, right. So they had to realize that was a normal pattern for them. So they preempted throughout the day, first thing in the morning, how do I need to be in each of these meetings? And most of them wrote down a single word, strategic, focused, compassionate, listening, whatever the word was. So when they walked from one meeting into another one, they were now grounding themselves with, okay, in this meeting, I've already planned, I need to be X. What is that? That's I wish first. I knew about this research when we wrote Match Fit about 18 months ago. That's exactly a performance moment where you sit down and look at what are the big moments in the day and how do you want to show up? Love it. Really key thing. Second thing was they looked, they really uh, were obsessed about their diary. And I use the word obsessed as in they were crystal clear, here are my, my objectives for my um, short-term, medium-term, long, longer-term typically is one to five years, depending on the organization. Some organizations have a shorter long-term, the manufacturing type organizations were much longer. But my short-term is typically this week and this month, medium-term typically was quarterly, uh, up, to, up to a year, and then long-term was uh, longer than that. So the other half of the morning was looking at my short to medium objectives, what do I need to do today to move them forward? As in, I need to make sure my diary reflects those. These leaders were obsessed with not going to meetings where their 
presence was not ultimately needed. So they were obsessed with looking at every single limitation and not just accepting it. I'll come back to that in a few minutes because that's a really key thing. The third, the third thing was, when we this is astounded us, every single meeting they had was either 10 minutes long, 25 minutes long, or 50 minutes long. This is across a whole spectrum leaders from different organizations. Why is that? Because they had recognized that I can't finish one meeting at 11 o'clock and start my next one at 11 o'clock. So no monochrome sea of gray back to back to back where you have attention residue at 3 p.m. You're still on the 11 a.m. meeting because you haven't had any downtime in between. Exactly right. Now, what does that tell us? They're obsessed with how they manage themselves because what they had understood over the course of the years, and we're talking about high school principals to the managing consultant Asia Pack for PricewaterhouseCoopers, dramatically different roles. They had realized was, if I'm the leader, I am the core vessel for leadership. Therefore, how do I optimize me? And that is the, I think is a really interesting thing, right? The fourth thing that they did every single morning, which goes back to the notion of, of meetings, was they refused or they made sure, whichever one came first, any meeting that they were going into, there was an agenda for that meeting already. And sometimes the agenda might be a pretty straightforward, you know, it's our weekly meeting with this supplier, and each week we have the same conversation. That's fine, but there was an agenda in the meeting. Sometimes it was, we need to make a decision about X. But they were crystal clear for themselves that in this meeting, my role is to either make a decision, whatever, i.e., they were focused on that meeting, which is why they were 15 minutes, 25 or 50, mm -hmm. right? Because you don't need to have a 50-minute meeting if the thing can be done in five minutes, right? So obsessed with the diary. And the evening time, what we noticed was they had they were triggered to do something in the evening. They all had an evening reflective practice. Some of them did it while they walked home. Some of them did it in the car. Some of them dictated their own answers to themselves in the car. Some of them did a handwriting in, in a journal. But the reflective process always was, how did I go today versus my objectives? Who did I let down? Or and this is the question that came up most. How was I the blocker today? And that's the question that we found to be the most transformative from a leadership. How have I blocked this organization or this team or this person today? The richness of that from a coaching psychology framework. Wow. Making meaning in the day, playing back what worked, and then the psychological detachment to transition, that space between work and home. Massive. I interviewed a lady of, of one of the groups. Um, she's in Auckland. And she said to me, you know, I walk home every evening. It's typically a 50-odd so minute uh, walk. And I, I use that for my reflecting pace. And so when I walk in the door, I'm finished. I'm, my family's there. The days that I have a really hard day at work, I take the long route home. It's a four and a half walk. And therefore, I'm taking longer to process it. And when I walk in the door, I'm ready to go. I'd love you to do a follow-up interview with that lady. What has she done after working from home? Because I think that's where a lot of people have lost that transition. Yeah, wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah. What was also interesting about that group, we had six out of the 40, all of them women, all wake up somewhere between two and three in the morning. And they'd wake up with an idea or concern. They'd, they'd turn over in the bed, turn on the, bed, the uh, side bed light, make a quick note in the notebook, go back to sleep. Well, from a sleep practice, Dr. Tom Buckley would say that is very good management because you're writing it down. Uh, if you're not having downtime, reflective practice during the day, so parasympathetic activation and getting out of beta into going alpha, then often those thoughts run at night and that's where the person is staring at the roof and the train, the GAN from Adelaide to Darwin, 50, 60 carriages long and they can't get to sleep. So yeah, all these are 
high are aligned with high performance coaching psychology frameworks. So um, the curious part of me, and then I'll, I'll I'll let you keep going, please. Is this nature or nurture? Did these people work these out intuitively, or did they have coaching? What became obvious over the time, because don't forget, we, we recorded this every day, seven days a week uh, for four weeks. What became obvious is they didn't necessarily stick to all the habits rigidly every single day. And we did interviews afterwards. And what they all said to us, now granted, the mere fact of an intervention, the mere fact of being you know, watched and then interviewed raises their own awareness of what their habits are naturally, right? So there's a bit of a placebo effect in the sense that everyone knows that they're being now watched. But what they said to us was, they noticed themselves that the days they don't stick to those rituals or habits, they are less effective. And they have learned over time that these, this for each of them, they have their own set of rituals or habits that if they don't stick to that, their overall efficacy drops. It may not be straight away, but over time it does. Some of the ones that they shared with us in terms of the habits that they know that if they don't keep up, their efficacy drops very quickly. One is lack of exercise. So the physical movements of all of these folks exercise um, at least uh, every second day, some of them every single day. Now, exercise might be as simple as a walk to and from work, and that's an hour each way, a good amount of exercise, but all of them put exercise as being a core part of their self-management. The second thing that they was, they had identified for them, and this is what I find profound, and this is really important for business owners, they have identified for them, their time is finite. So therefore, I'm choosing to be in this leadership role, whatever that role was, and I'm choosing to be here. So therefore, I'm making choices about my time. I am choosing to spend time in particular places. I am making a choice as to who I want to spend my time with. They had all recognized that I could have many, many friends or associates. I haven't got the capacity to spread myself that thing. So they had actively chosen my family are most important. So therefore, when I go home, I am home. Hence the reflection piece on the way home. And for all of them, they said to us, which we were very surprised at, I have a small core group of friends and they are my friends. I don't need more than that. And I certainly haven't got the time to be their friend to, to a bigger group. I very purposeful around my leadership role is really important to me. My time is finite. If I'm to maximize me, I can't have that many distractions. Here are the core people I want to spend my time with. And I think that sense of purpose and a sense of high performance, you're right, is extraordinarily effective. From a leadership perspective compared to, let's say, a, an athlete, they question you around how am I the blocker and how, how can I be the enabler? That was the most powerful question of all. If you look at those four or five habits and then the two not to do, you play that back as a statement. And if our listeners did those five or six things every day, that would set them up for high performance. So give us a summary. Starting point always is number one is get a clear picture for yourself. Why are you doing this business? Or as a founder, why am I setting this up? And what kind of leader does the business need? Not what leader do I want to be? What kind of leader does the business need? Question number one, that sets an external sense of purpose and an and, and, and attraction for where I need to be. Second is, how do I set up a daily practice of priming myself in the morning, it takes no more than 10 minutes, and an evening reflection that takes no more than 10 minutes on how I've gone. That's the practice. Third one is, how do I get my body in such a way that it's primed to do its role? So nutrition, exercise, everything that you have on Strive Stronger and in your books. And fourth, how do I have a small cadre of people around me that I can truly trust who will give me feedback, but also a cadre of people who are my friends and that's the folks who nourish me. Mm. Get those right, you do well. 
clarity and purpose, state management, energy and sustainability and having a tribe. Love it. Now, I've got one question to ask on that. Then I'm going to give you a few rapid fire questions. And then we wanted to let everyone know where they can get more of pod and especially listening to you with your leadership diet, which is one of my favorite podcasts at the moment, especially the reflective piece. If you want to know what I'm talking about, you're going to have to go and listen. There's a nice little anchor to go and get some pod in your life. The 60, 40, 60% of the people you surveyed globally were female. Why do you think females were 60% of that cohort? Or why do you think you've said before females often make better leaders? So let me, let me just uh, distinguish that. So in the high performance group, so of the on this data set, the top 10 percentile of leaders in this data set, and then the folks that we had in our survey, the majority were women. So that's, that says to us, according to that tool, and it's been shown in other tools as well, that um, women are certainly at least as equal as men in the highest performing levels, but actually are often higher performing. I think there's a few different levels to it, a few different reasons to it. In this particular leadership tool, and there's quite a few like this, and the data is similar across them, the only area in leadership assessment where women are different to men, as in women and men score very, very similarly in every aspect, bar one, and that is women are more caring for people than their men colleagues are, i.e. as a leader, I'm seen to demonstrate to my staff that I am more caring for them than my male colleagues do. That's the only thing that's distinguished them. Everything else, women and men have very, very similar traits and, and success, right? Where women also have a slight difference is they are less egotistical around how good they are, as in the arrogance level is not as high. So for me, I look at that and go, okay, I demonstrate to people that I care for them, and I, I demonstrate less that I'm more important than them. They've done research on that, right? Male and female go for the same job interview. Let's say they get six out of 10 questions right, four not right. Male comes out, high fives everyone. I nailed it. Woohoo! Look in the mirror. You're the man. Female comes out, how'd you go? I bombed it. Oh, it's terrible. Uh, it's it's, it's, it's a, just a, I don't know I'm making a stereotype, but I see that so often when I'm working you're, you're with athletes. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. So often in, in executive terms. Yep. Um, in, in one of our podcast episodes, uh, well, I, I spoke to uh, one of our mutual colleagues, actually, who is a very talented and experienced um, headhunter at the very senior levels in corporate. And one of his specialities is helping leaders transition into their new company, their new role as the chief executive, whatever it is. But his research, his whole PhD was looking at what are the environmental factors that help people be successful in the organization. And what came out of that was not just what you just said. And on top of what you just said is, you know, you've got a new job going. There's 10 criteria that are really important. And man has got four of them. He goes, fantastic. I've got a growth edge here. I wouldn't take the new job if I didn't have something to learn. So great. I'm your candidate. Woman's got eight of the 10 criteria. Go, oh, sorry. I'm not, I'm not good enough yet. I need to have nine or 10. Now, it's a bit of a stereotypical view, of course, and not everyone sits into that category, but there's definitely a gender difference between men and women around arrogance. And from a leadership point of view, that translates into, I think, a stronger sense of people wanting to work for that leader. She demonstrates she cares for me. She's equally capable to any man that I've worked with. And she's not an arrogant person that is showing off to me. I am more committed to them. I, I suspect that's what it translates into. 
Yeah, well, we could dig into that a whole lot more, and we will. I've already got a parallel port running on the Strive Stronger podcast by me. When we've got that up and running early next year, we're going to get you back and we'll talk more specific to high performance and leadership as well because uh, you already give me so much content that we can pull a thread on next time. All right, three questions, and then we'll get out of here. The question number one, is there a play, a poem, a song, a book, something in your life that you draw inspiration from? Well, you know that your, your colleague Tom and I are huge U2 fans, so I, I draw huge inspiration from U2, but let, let me give two specific... I know you've both been to enough U2 concerts to fund one of Bono or Larry or one of the Edge's holiday yeah. homes. So I think <laughs> we've been to 50 concerts around the world. I mean, for me, this this my favorite song of all time is where the streets have no name. Melodically, I just love the the. I'm, I'm a bass player, and I love the melodic side of the song. But spiritually or vocally, I love the notion of they were in that song. They're pointing to let's go somewhere where the potential is enormous. Like they haven't even named the streets yet. That's that's how exciting this place can be. We're going to where the streets have no name. And as a young, I think it was 15 or so when I first heard that song, it just really spoke to me. And so what I love about you two, and particularly Bono, is the sense of passion for what's possible. And they're now in their 60s, and they're still oh, really new. I saw new. them, uh, must have been 18 months ago, the Sydney Cricket Ground. Yeah, I So that shows you it was a while ago, because the SCG was still there, and we were in concerts. Phenomenal. And actually, I'm going to listen to that song tonight. I love it, especially loud. Two is actually a question on music. Why should everyone listening to this no matter what size business you have, build some music into their life? So this is a curated question for you. But why, why, what are the benefits for music for us in business? So I, I'm, I'm a music fan. I'm a musician. You know, I'm a part-time amateur musician, but music has always been a core part of who I am, not just because I play it, but I think music, unlike any other language and any other modality of art, first of all, it speaks to everybody, but... The way melody works, it touches you at, I believe, at a soul level. It touches you way beyond, you know, feel and smell, etc. And I think that is a, a, a way or a lever to both excite you. So, you know, the reason we use music to get in exercises to give you an up-tempo sense of excitement. It can alleviate stress to different types of music. It give you a sense of relaxation. Like there's so much to do with music, for, but for, so for me, it, it actually touches your soul more than anything else. So if you're, I mean, being a business owner is a, in one sense, is an extraordinary, exciting opportunity. And Australia is, is an economy that encourages entrepreneurship and business ownership. And I, I think it's fantastic. Being a business owner, it's also very hard. And so we need as much support as we can get. Music is free. It elevates your soul, elevates your brain, elevates your creativity. Why would you not want to use it? Another good U2 song, Elevate. There we go. Dr. Tom will be very proud of my link on that one. And the final question, I've asked you lots of questions today and I've, I've loved today. I've found out a lot about you and do the analysis over a beer in Jeroa or Jeringong another day. But I've actually, asking you those questions about when you were young just shows why you're so composed and compassionate and caring and lots of other C words to get the alliteration in there. So it's been wonderful learning more about you. But I have asked you lots of questions. Is there a final question you'd like me to ask you? Or do you want to do a flip? Is there a question you'd like to ask me? Stop me with that. Given the podcast we're on, you have very successfully set up 
shut down, sold, reinvented businesses, reinvented yourself many times. You're, you're doing it again. What has been the thread of energy and passion for you that you brought through all those iterations? And with that, what has sustained you to keep reinventing yourself through different businesses? Hmm. Never been asked that question. <laughs> now I'm stumped. <laughs> <laughs> Let's finish 30 episodes of a podcast. Yeah. Okay, the first one, what's got me going? I, I think what got me going initially was a chip on the shoulder, personal trainer in Hobart, a chip meaning I wanted to prove to people I could do business. I had a business owner back then. I, I suggested wanting to do personal training. He told me it'll never work. So the arrogance and ego in me was like, well, screw you, I'll make it work. That, that was way, way, way back. But then it's been more about drive. I, I actually love what I do. And I only worked out my purpose when I left KPMG. So I, I think sort of that chip initially, I'd only say it's shifted into drive in the last 18 months to two years. And if I get deep with you on the difference between achievement and fulfillment, I reckon for 15 or 20 years, I was achievement focused. Yeah. Trophies, accolades, so the Western definition of success that we learned it. Uh, Sydney University coaching psychology, Todd Kardashian, talks about the good life and the goods life. I think I was chasing the goods life. Power, money, success, kudos. And you know, buy a business, sell a business, buy a business, sell a business. And then when I was at KPMG, and I'd made a decision to leave 12 months out, one, uh, my leader at the time was, was really concerned that I was so transparent because there must be an ulterior motive. No, no, I want to do this in a nice way and the legacy, you know, to have the business keep going. And, and we have got great relationships still at KPMG. So definitely it was the right thing to do. But there was something missing, Pod. People were saying, oh, yeah, you've done this and you've done that. But inside was, why am I always chasing? Why do I need to set up a business, work with a national sporting team, be on TV, write books? It was achievement, 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 largely ego-driven. And then I worked with a guy named Richard Burton when I was transitioning from KPMG, who is a purpose coach. And Burdo took four or five months and I worked out my purpose. And that got me through COVID. So it's, it's a great question to finish up on because what got me going to start with was achievement and accolades. And, and you know, I love helping people. You know that. You know, it juices me. It's not the money. It was the money you, you know, probably do one or two and then just lie on a beach and you know, put on a heap of weight and get heart disease. <laughs> but it was something inside me that wasn't balanced. I was always wanting more. So now I feel much more centered, much calmer around it and much more on purpose and, and I think that'll keep me going for years so I'm late 40s now and you know, I want to live to 130 so I, the, the, the message for people listening I think you know, get going energize use whatever you need but then go deeper if you want to sustain it and you know we did a podcast with you recently on burnout I think a lot of people burn out because they run out of energy they don't go back to the well I, I completely understand and relate to what you just said and it goes back to our earlier conversation about identity you know Early in your life, your identity was achieved. Get awards, accolades, set money. Perfect. That's a really important stage to be at and understand what drives that. Because then, then you'll you'll deliver your business accordingly. Later, that's that shifts, and then you deliver a different type of business accordingly. Great. I, I love it. It's um, very similar to myself. You know, early in my career, I was so proud of how good I was in sales. And let me tell you how brilliant I am at sales. Let me tell you how how many cars I can buy. It meant now it means nothing to me. 
It means nothing at all from the point of view of the achievement of sales. Now it's just, you know, what's the value I'm adding? And, you know, am I really shifting people's lives because they are leading really important businesses now? That's a dramatically different place to be. And there's nothing like waking up in the morning and starting a business, taking people to a place where the streets have no name. That was for you. <laughs> I could just see you. <laughs> I could just see you. It just warmed your heart. It's true. Like I love going where the streets have no name. So for people who would love to get a weekly dose of pod, where do we find you? Where are you at both on your podcast and how do people connect with you either on the socials or on the interweb? Our podcast is called The Leadership Diet. And it's a, uh, we do, we're now in a, uh, just com- coming to the end of our third season and where our fourth season will start um, in the new year. Um, so Leadership Diet, you can get it on all podcast um, platforms. LeadershipDiet.com is a website that links um, to all of the materials around the website. So any article, we write an article after almost every guest. And so resources around the guests, resources around them, resources around the podcast. LeadershipDiet.com is a place to go to. My own personal website is PodOsullivan.com. So stuff that I'm thinking about and doing is over there. And then my business website is theleadershipcontext.com. And we'll put all those details on the show notes. Pod, I love catching up. I've loved catching up today. And thank you for sharing so much wisdom and helping us round out what's been a wonderful experience with NAB Business Fit. I appreciate the, uh, the invitation and to being here and look forward to our next beer in Jiro. That's it for now, the 30th episode of NAB Business Fit. I'd love to take this opportunity on behalf of all the team at Strive Stronger to thank Anna Marenkovic and the NAB small business team for giving us the opportunity to put this podcast together. We've had loads of awesome guests from business, large and small, industry leaders, thought leaders, scientists, elite athletes, a whole range of people. It's been a joy to do this podcast. We are wrapping up this podcast, but we are not wrapping up podcasting. We're going to be doing a podcast for a large global firm. That's an internal podcast. But we are also launching the Strive Stronger podcast by Andrew May or the Strive Stronger podcast by me. And that's going to be available very soon as well. That's going to be a weekly podcast, which is around all things human performance. So we'd love you to go over there and subscribe and get involved with us there. Uh, Thank you, Nab. It's been an amazing experience. Thank you to all the small business owners as well that have dialed into this and have given us feedback about the type of podcast, the audio product you want, especially that has helped you to navigate these challenging times. It's been all about looking after your bodies and brains, navigating business and taking care of new ways of working. So for now, I'll sign off and say thank you. Thank you very, very much.